listeners to another episode on the podcast series, The Churches of Christ, sponsored by the Skillman Church of Christ. This is your host, John Mark Davidson. I am so excited to share this interview with Dr. Jeremy Hegie on the history of global missions within the Churches of Christ and specifically who this Sarah Andrews person was and, and her impact on missions within the Restoration Movement. Dr. Hegie is a professor at Lubbock Christian University on the history of Christianity. And we actually first met at Texas A&M University back a long, long time ago when we were both undergrads together and we were a part of the ministry Aggies for Christ. And I remember Jeremy being such a kind and generous and caring and compassionate human being. And he's also very smart. And he tells some of his story in the interview, but, but after A&M, he spent some time in the country of Thailand, uh, and then he came back to receive an MDiv at Abilene Christian University, and that took him to Boston, where he received a PhD at Boston University. This is a great interview with a great person, and I began uh, by asking him his relationship with the Churches of Christ, and here was his response. Well, I'm probably, I think, a third or fourth generation Church of Christ person. So one of those folks that grew up, you know, was taken to Sunday school right after they were born kind of thing. Uh, But my family's from West Texas. Um, So I grew up up at Sunset Church of Christ here in Lubbock. Lubbock, Texas. And there's a lot of listeners out there from Lubbock, Texas. You know, Jeremy, I've never met an unkind person from Lubbock. I, I think there's something in the water there, honestly, man. That's good. That's good to hear. Yeah, there's a lot of friendly people here, yeah, for sure. It's a good place to be. Uh, and there's a lot of, I think, a lot of creative energy in our churches uh, here. Um, and so I'm excited about being back here. Uh, we, uh, yeah, I grew up, grew up at Sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, uh, of course, that had a big impact on my life, being yeah. shaped uh, in Church of Christ in that way. And then Went to AM, Texas Woo! AM University. Woo! That's right. <laughs> That's right, man. Yes, great choice. Yep, absolutely. Uh had a had a huge impact on my life. I think it that set me on the trajectory that brought me where I am today. So I was involved in the Aggies for Christ. Yes. Um where I met you, where That's I, where we met. That's, that's where we right. met. And, and Kelly Davidson, your dad, had a big impact on my life as well as I know he he has so many people. Your your grandpa, uh Bob and Grandma Mert, of course, as well. <laughs> Such well, great you, people. Uh, and uh, when I was at AM Church of Christ, I got turned on to missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I grew up at a place that was very big in missions at Sunset with AIM and the Sunset yes. School of Preaching. Yes. And I left thinking, I have no interest in this whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so then I met these folks from outside of that context, you know, and I got mm-hmm. to go to Thailand uh, a couple times. And then, of course, after I graduated, I was there longer. And in, how long did you spend there? Was it like two years or how long were you there total in Thailand? Um, Two summers and then about 18 months after oh. I graduated. And then I went to ACU and w- with the intention of going back, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think. Well, originally, not necessarily going back originally, originally it was trying to sort out all this stuff that I had received. <laughs> I don't know if that's familiar yeah, or not. You know, like what, you know, I'm in Thailand and I see these folks who are born Buddhists. Mm. I was born a Christian. 
and just thinking about what does that mean? You know, why am I a Christian? Why are they Buddhists? You know, how have I made this thing my own in a way? And then, of course, questions about the Bible, questions about churches of Christ, questions about Christianity. And I needed a safe place to unpack a lot of those questions. So ACU was that for me. It was a good experience. I, I was blessed to have great professors, uh, great peers. Uh, you were there, I think, just a year or two ahead of yeah, me. We overlapped <laughs> so, a little bit, man. It was it was good while, while it lasted that that one year that we overlapped. Yeah, just following in your footsteps, I guess. Uh, it was a good place for me to kind of rethink some of those things. So uh, while I was at ACU, I, um, you know, of course, continued to be involved in Churches of Christ, preached for a small church in Opland, mm-hmm. Texas, for about five <laughs> years. I love it. There uh, and uh, continued to go to Southeast Asia when mm-hmm. I could. Mm-hmm. Um, almost joined uh, a team there uh, and decided mm-hmm. not to uh, for a few reasons. One was my professors at the time were encouraging me to go further in graduate school mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. some of uh, master's work I had done. And then two, I was beginning to wonder. I. I think I was thinking about joining the missions world at a time when we were going through a lot of transitions about mm-hmm. international missions and churches of Christ. Wow. wow. We're moving from a church sponsorship model, mm-hmm. you know, where mm-hmm. usually you'd have a church that would primarily sponsor a family or a missionary. Yes. Yes. And then they might of course gather more money from, a, you know, this is, mm-hmm. this was our model for a long time since we've been missionary societies. But what we were seeing was, uh, I think in the early 2000s, especially by the time we're getting to the 2010s, church churches are in decline in terms of their their uh, membership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're rethinking, where are we going to invest our resources and our money? I, I realized that it, I was caught in this transition moment. And I'm sure you were going on to the mission field right at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Where it wasn't like it was with your dad and before you couldn't yeah. necessarily mm-hmm. say, I'm going to have this church. I'm gonna, they're going to provide me this salary mm-hmm. or I might need to get a couple of churches. that will do that. Churches just weren't doing that anymore. I had to think you had to think more creatively yes. about that. So I, that, that caused me to pause and think, okay, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What's happening here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing that we're seeing too is this shift of the demographic weight of Christianity to the global South. Right. Wow. wow, So more Christians uh, or the common Christian today is either a sub-Saharan African family Mm -hmm. or a um, single poor mother living in a Brazilian slum. Whereas a hundred years ago, around 1910, the common Christian was a European middle-class family. So this great reversal, right? Same thing has happened in churches of Christ. Um, Today, we have about 1.1 million members in the United States. In India alone, 1.3 million. Sub-Saharan Africa, 1.6 million and climbing. South America, probably upwards of 250 to 300,000 and climbing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Asia, I haven't gotten the numbers on yet, but (laughs) there are places where it's exploding and, and then there's places we don't know. Um, so all that to say, whenever this demographic weight has flipped mm-hmm. like that, and we're, we have to rethink our model of missions, right? Yes, totally. It used to be, we are bringing 
the gospel. We're crossing mm-hmm. a body of salt water to go wherever we're going. Yes. And we're probably going to be there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's just not the case anymore. Now mission is from everywhere to everywhere. Wow. You know, so like, for example, when I lived in Boston, mm-hmm. I would be waiting on a train platform and I'd see a Nigerian missionary in a three-piece suit wearing <laughs> a sandwich board <laughs> <laughs> trying to bring people to Jesus. Uh, or if you ever go to New England, you go to Boston, you go to a, a tall building and you look at the landscape, you'll see church steeples everywhere. And one of my advisors, professors, he called that the residue of Christendom. You know, <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it's because uh, if you look closer, a lot of those churches are apartments now or they're empty mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. But if you take a much closer look, what's interesting is they're not just apartments, they're uh, Chinese evangelical Christian churches, they're Korean Presbyterian churches, they're Nigerian Pentecostal churches. Wow. So now there's just complete flip. So in that context, it's like, Mm -hmm. what does mission mean? Of course, we're called to mission. We don't give it up. What does it look like? What assumptions do we have that we need to revisit and uh, perhaps um, grow out and how can we maybe be more of a partner and more of a friend than somebody with all the resources in hand who thinks we're bringing the truth to, uh, those who don't have it. So Jeremy, this is so fascinating. These are the right questions to be asking in a time like this. And I'm so curious to, uh, to hear some of your thoughts on this later in the the podcast. And I know you, you alluded to Boston. And, uh, so, I'm sure the listeners are saying, hey, you know, Lubbock to Boston, Lubbock, Abilene, now Boston. And uh, <laughs> if you have a little background, I know you decided uh, post-Abilene Christian uh, to go and pursue a PhD at Boston University. And so you were there and uh, you finished up there. And I, I have your dissertation title here. It's interesting title. It, it's drawn me in ever since I've, I've seen it. Stand for the New Testament order and trust God for the consequences. Sarah Andrews in the emergence of churches of Christ as a global Christian tradition. I mean, right there, it, you begin this conversation of this global Christian tradition. But just curious, you know, I have been in the churches of Christ my entire life. I don't even know who Sarah Andrews is. Tell us how you came to this dissertation topic. Uh, who is Sarah Andrews and, and what impact has she had on missions, the restoration movement, and also this global Christian tradition? Well, it started with, of course, my own interest in missions, having worked in Thailand uh, during my time in Aggies for Christ and after, and wanting to possibly uh, return. So when I was looking for resources within our own denomination of missions history, and I was always interested in Asia, of course, it was it was hard to find those, especially before World War II. Um, and so I did my master's work on a guy named Don Carlos James, who was a big missionary promoter in Churches of Christ before then. When I got to BU, one of the things that I was exposed to um, was the history of women in Christianity, especially the history of women in global Christianity. So, for example, today, uh, women outnumber men in Christianity by a two to one ratio for every one man, there's two women. So women make up the vast majority of Christians in the world. And this is, this is true. Historically speaking too. women have always formed the backbone of the Christian Mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I thought, wow, that's, that's interesting. If that's true, generally, is it true for churches of Christ? And how does this work for out of missions as well? Um, so for example, the women's missionary movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s reflected that same demographic ratio. Two out of three missionaries from America, Britain, Protestants in general, were mm-hmm. women missionaries, the majority of whom were single uh, female missionaries as well. So, uh, and what you see is their approach to the work is always holistic mm-hmm. um, because they were often precluded from traditional roles of preaching, evangelism, leading churches. Mm-hmm. Instead, they would think of their evangelism in terms of education from teaching kindergarten to high school, of course, to college, to mm-hmm. medical work, to advocacy for women in other cultures, you name it. Yes. Um, so there's this holistic work that they're doing where they're working with women around the globe, lifting women up. And so I'm seeing all this in the Methodists, the Baptists, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. like Lottie Moon and others. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what about churches of Christ? Yeah. So I started doing research and there's already a couple books out um, about this. Uh, Bonnie Miller's, um, what is the name of that book? Messengers, there it is. Messengers of the Risen Sun in the Land of the Rising Sun, mm-hmm. where she talks about women from the Stone Campbell movement who are working in Japan. Wow. Um, and wow. so Sarah Andrews is our major female missionary working uh, in wow. Japan. She was there from 1916 to 1961. Interesting. And wow. What's interesting about her is she's from Dixon, Tennessee, you know, small town, mm-hmm. Tennessee. She was inspired by her mom. Um, and her mom's connection with some missionaries and she wanted to go to ministry. She never married. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, what, what's unique about her story is she was in Japan through world war II and didn't leave. She stayed, you know, that's what the title, uh, that's what she told her churches when, um, the Japanese government was cracking down on Christianity during the war stand for the new Testament order. There's our restorationist side. Right. And trust God for the consequences. You know, what, what are they facing in this? And there's this trust theology she's bringing with her, but in those four years or in those almost, I think 40, 45 years, Mm -hmm. she planted uh, four churches in partnership with uh, Iki Namura, a local uh, person who was her partner throughout this whole time. Um, Those four churches are still there today still working. Um, and she has a pretty incredible story. What's interesting about her story beyond even what she went through in Japan, what she suffered through during the war mm-hmm. is when she leaves, uh, to go to America when they're first, or excuse me, when she leaves to go to Japan and they're mm-hmm. first trying to get money for her, mm-hmm. uh, and resources, they, um, the way they frame it is Sarah Andrews will be an assistant to the missionaries. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Think of Dwight Schrute in the office, assistant to the regional manager <laughs> instead of assistant regional manager. Um, because the church of Christ, we were really uncomfortable with uh, w- w- women, you know, how are women going to fit in here? What are they going to, uh, what's, what's biblical for them to do? Of course, we just had had a big, public back and forth between David Lipscomb and Selena Holman Mm. that's fresh in people's minds about what's women's roles in churches Mm. of Christ. Mm -hmm. 1916 churches of Christ is still trying to consolidate our identity after leaving 
disciples of Christ. So who are we? Where are we going to be? And usually when you're consolidating your identity, boundary, setting boundaries is one way to do that, right? Yes, yes. And, and so she leaves and they don't want to rock the boat. So assistant to the missionaries. <laughs> so what's interesting is over the course of her career, she, the way that the papers describe her mm-hmm. is the image slowly shifts from assistant to the missionaries, worthy missionary, a missionary martyr. Oh. So World War II, right? Wow. So, and this is a role that women often em- embody in the Christian tradition mm-hmm. as a kind of this, this martyr role. So think all the way back to um, the very first martyrs, um, Perpetual ah. and Felicity. From, them on, from then on, women, for whatever reason, have always fulfilled this kind of martyr role. Here are people who are living up to the image of Jesus Christ. And we're going to use them as an example that's going to spur other Christians on to holy living. And we see that consistently throughout the history of Christianity. Um, you know, on a broader scale for the Baptists, Lottie Moon is the big one. Oh, wow. uh, they have a Lottie Moon Christmas offering. She died in China of starvation during a famine, giving food to kids, single missionary. And Sarah Andrews functioned in much the same way. She sacrifices herself for the churches in Japan, but she lives through the war. Mm-hmm. And the final, the final image is they describe her as the Apostle Paul. Oh, man. Well, what a shift. I mean, from the assistant to the missionary to later being described as the Apostle Paul. Wow, that's an incredible shift. And and what we see there is a couple things. One, she becomes the mirror by which churches of Christ see their global identity developing. So when she leaves in 1916, our consciousness is still that of largely a Southern American regional Christian tradition. Of course, we'll say things like we're the we're the Lord's church. We're the restored New Testament church. But we're thinking about Tennessee. We're thinking about Texas. We're thinking about um, those debates and things like that. While there is a burgeoning missionary movement that's trying to push our consciousness outside of our borders. Mm-hmm. But then between probably 1916 and 1945, we're doing what a lot of other churches are doing. We're the older established church. Uh, and then we're going out to the younger churches or we're starting new churches or that's the mission field of this is us. But what happens, especially through World War One, or excuse me, World War Two, is when the Japanese government begins cracking down on these things and Sarah Andrews is there. It's not those. Are, that's the mission field. But those are our people. That's us. Wow. Yes. That yeah. they're going after. And so there's this real mm-hmm. consciousness that we're not just American, mm-hmm. but we're. Japanese, we're Chinese, if you want to talk about the Broadduses, or we're African, you know, so during this period, we see this development of a global consciousness that extends beyond the American borders. Um, Wow. And Sarah Andrews played a role in that. And of course, practically speaking, she extended Churches of Christ into Southern Mm -hmm. Japan, right, Mm -hmm. by planting those churches as well. So there's a lot of interesting things happening. And then I guess the last piece, why she's important is you have to think about the American context, Mm -hmm. 1916, 1920, 1925, 1930. There's no internet, right? There's no TV. There's no radio. How are people learning about the outside world? We're still largely a rural country. The primary lens through which the common American 
is exposed to the outside world outside of America is through missionaries. That's true. That's true. Right. Through their publications, through people coming back and reporting in churches, mm-hmm. you know, so Sarah Andrews would come back, wear a kimono, say some things in Japanese in rural Dixon, Tennessee or rural Arkansas or wherever. That's the first time anybody's ever heard Japanese. Wow. Yeah. So these missionaries, and this is historically true, are the first, you know, they, they're, they're the first lens through which America in general views the outside world. They're the ones who yes. help shape perceptions of what the globe looks like for the common American person. So that is uh, there's a lot of interesting things to dig in here. Yes. A couple of questions, too, about Sarah Andrews. How did she survive the war? I mean, what, what happened during the war? How what, was she in a place that was uh, in the middle of fighting or how did she survive it? So the the traditional narrative is and this is also where the trust in God part of my title comes from mm-hmm. is that through her trust in God and God's special providence, God took care of her through the war, through mm-hmm. her faith. Mm-hmm. Um, digging deeper, however, I think there's a better story than that there. And I got to be careful saying that. Mm-hmm. And the, the better story is this. Yes. The Japanese people took care of her during the war. Ooh, man, that's beautiful. People who are supposed to be her enemies uh, were her friends. They sacrificed in some cases, their safety and their own goods Mm -hmm. to help her. And then display this incredible hospitality to her. So just because nations go to war, doesn't mean that community and friendship ceases Mm -hmm. to exist between people. So she was in, um, the city of, uh, I think it's Numatsu. Now I got to look again. I always get these confused she initially started in okitsu japan a small town and then she moved to uh oh, shizuoka that's it shizuoka city which is the capital of the prefecture mm. uh, where she worked and she um she stayed in the church there uh and she was put under house arrest mm. and then as conditions in japan got worse for for everyone they got worse for her too so at, at one point she talks about eating grasshoppers boiling grass for tea wow. things like that but this is what all the Japanese people were facing mm-hmm. during this time the the really hard part comes towards the end of the war when america begins a firebombing campaign on the japanese islands mm-hmm. and this is something we have to come to grips with as americans this was a tool of terror oh you know, these incendiary bombs were put were put on these cities. It happened in Germany and Dresden, too, meant to uh, demoralize the population. And they would create these horrible firestorms that destroyed people and culture and all sorts of stuff. I mean, war is ugly. And I think as Christians, we have to recognize that and what our place is in that. But anyway, uh, she's a woke city gets firebombed and she sleeps th- through the night. Because, you know, she's so exhausted and a a bomb falls like 200 feet from her house. But for whatever reason, her house is it's spared. You know, Mm -hmm. the rest of the city burns. And so the next day they turn her house into a hospital for the Mm -hmm. wounded. And she cares for the people there um, Mm -hmm. who are brought into her house, even though she's under house arrest. And then eventually she's too sick to carry on. So they move those folks out. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty quickly after that. Americans come in and they occupy the island and they find her. 
Mm. Um, and the way the reason they find her is her sister-in-law here in Texas. Uh, her husband was a preacher, and every time soldiers would come to church, they'd say, "Hey, where are you going to Japan?" And they'd be like, "Yeah." She'd say, "Well, my sister Sarah Andrews lives there. Here's her address. Can you go find her?" And one of those soldiers found her. No way. So they came with. Uh, they came and found her. They left her with some rations, and they came back the next day with a with a convoy full of food and medicine that they distributed to her and the people wow. there. And and of course, you know, the folks are looking at her like, "Who is this person that this this would happen?" So she she gets rescued. She eventually comes back to America, regains her health, and then returns to Japan again and uh, continues her work until she dies there in 1961. Okay, so I was curious if she, um, you know, the 1961 was her death or is when she moved back to the States, but she died there in Japan. Yeah, and if you go there today, it's really interesting. And, and you're, you know this, in, in Asia, mm-hmm. um, land is at a premium right yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not like here in texas where we, we we can just kind of spread out uh every parcel of land is is worth a lot and and so in japan as opposed to some other countries they do have cemeteries mm. where you know they bury the bones of people who've died in the shizuoka church in shizuoka prefecture there's a cemetery and they the church has a big plot a big for them plot of land where they have a small mausoleum for the bones of members of the church, but then behind that they have a massive tomb wow. dedicated to Sarah Andrews, and she's buried there today. Yeah. If you go to all of her churches, there's a picture of her on the uh, on the wall in the auditorium. Which you know, for churches of Christ, it's it's it feels strange, but yeah. <laughs> in that tradition or in that culture, she's the honored founder she of is. this, yes. and so. We respect her and that kind of thing. Yeah, it makes sense in the Asian context uh, to have such profound respect and honor for her uh, for founding this new movement. And I think it's fascinating what you brought up as well, just the role of the missionary in that day and age. Before internet, before TV, before you know the CNN news, you had cameras everywhere. And this was where Americans as a whole received our information, our information about other cultures and talking to missionaries maybe the generation above us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our parents' generation. And you ask, well, how or why did you become a missionary? Well, their first story begins with, well, there was a guest missionary that came back and they preached. And I, I, I didn't even know this world existed. And I was just captivated mm-hmm. and curious. And it led me to hear. And, and so you alluded to it earlier, too, in the podcast that we're in a different world. You know, missionaries, American missionaries we are, it's a different world then, it's a different world uh, than then, it's, it's a different world now. You know, how would you assess where we are uh, today? And looking back, are, are there any insights um, that can explain where we are right now as a movement? Yeah, that's a tough question. We were talking about it earlier, and I think we are really in this identity crisis. You know, the things that have historically held us together just simply aren't anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. things like, um, you know, we had, everyone was reading the gospel advocate and the firm foundation and those newspapers. Well, no one does anymore. Mm -hmm. Or if they do, they tend to be one subsect of churches of Christ, one slice of it. Mm -hmm. I think the one paper that a lot of people still read is a Christian Chronicle. True. And they're doing good work, but even then they're switching to a a web platform. Mm -hmm. 
And then other things that used to hold us together, like our lectureships, mm. don't necessarily do that anymore either. You know, people aren't doing them as much anymore. Of course, of course, COVID has disrupted all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's, what it's turned into, again, is depending on what kind of Church of Christ you're a part of, right? <laughs> you're going to go to one set of lectureships or another. You might go to Pepperdine, you might go to Abilene, or you might go to Freed, mm-hmm. you know, or Hardy, <laughs> depending <laughs> On where you are. And so that's tough. And then I think what we've, we've become a lot more like our evangelical brothers and sisters, broadly speaking, as you mentioned earlier, we're rejecting the sectarianism mm-hmm. of the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and we're looking for something more. One of the ironic things that happens in doing that, which I think it's a good move to reject that sectarianism, but when we reject those boundaries that define us, then we're also throwing out our identity on, on some level as well. Mm-hmm. So ironically, or I don't know if ironic is the right word, but um, you know, those, those ultra conservative churches of Christ, they're going to be around for a long time. They're going to have that strong identity because they're holding on yes. to those things. And so I think one of the challenges for us is how can we establish an identity or reestablish or recover or restore even to use that language, um, an identity that we can confidently stand in mm-hmm. while also um, uh, living into the best of our kind of Christian unity roots. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think when I was at Boston University in my cohort, there was me, Church of Christ guy from West Texas, a Jesuit, a Jesuit uh, priest from Cameroon, <laughs> A Pentecostal woman from Vermont, a Quaker, a, uh, a Presbyterian from Nebraska, you know, and just this diversity. But we're having these conversations with each other. You know, my best friend up there was a Nazarene from mm-hmm. Kansas City. Interesting. And we uh, we are having these conversations with each other about the church, missions, Christianity, history of Christianity, but all doing them confidently from our respective identities mm-hmm. and enjoying that fellowship together yes. and not apologizing for who we are. Well, so I think we need to get past that mm-hmm. uh, embarrassment of our past, accept it for what it is. Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones <laughs> who are like that. So we need to get over that. We Back then it was like, we were the only ones who were going to heaven. And now we're like, well, we're the only ones who are so sectarian. That's not true at all. Everyone, Everyone was dealing with it. Yes, everyone was doing it. And you know what? We don't have to do that anymore. And it's okay to accept it Mm -hmm. and move forward and then accept and then look for what are what are the treasures that we bring to the table of Christianity? Right. Our our acapella singing. Mm -hmm. I think we need a more robust theology that Mm -hmm. undergirds that than what we have. But I still think it's a treasure we bring to the table. Um, Our our love of scripture, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, of course, as you mentioned, our unity uh, our, our love of Christian unity. We've expressed that in different ways, but that's always been a strong part of our DNA. Yes. And it's something that we've got to, we've got to, especially in this global world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that brings me to the next kind of historical insight is this demographic shift to global Christianity. Yes. Yes. Um, what it does is it helps us, it helps shake us out of our American foundations and this is what i mean yeah one of the one of the big 
defining narratives of American Christianity is the Exodus narrative. Mm. If you're white, uh, it is we were enslaved in Europe, especially in England. Mm-hmm. And then we came here to the promised land for freedom. Yes. And then that narrative gets supercharged in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Mm-hmm. It, it, it becomes uh, this American exceptionalism is built into it, that America is God's greatest hope, or, or not God's, but the world's greatest hope. Yes. Yes. Not the church. Ameri- <laughs> and so the church gets, and Christianity gets wrapped up in this Americanism. Mm-hmm. And global Christianity helps us rethink our uh, allegiances and our identities. If there are 1.3 million brothers and sisters in churches of Christ alone in India, what does that mean about my, is my allegiance to the kingdom of God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or is it to this country? Um, it, and the other side of that Exodus narrative is for black folks. Mm-hmm. America was not the promised land. It was Egypt, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was Egypt during slavery, is Egypt during Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And some would still say now, but again, this idea of chosenness is wrapped up in this. Yes. We are chosen just like the people of Israel was. And we're looking forward to the day that God is going to mm-hmm. come and redeem us and take us to the promised land. And I think one of the things that we need to do is decouple ourselves from um, the American story in a way that um, helps us think about our allegiances wider mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also um, think about the one part of the story we're not talking about. We, we talk about slavery and freedom, but we don't talk about wandering in the wilderness. Mm. Mm. And I can't help but wonder, and I think about racially speaking and other things, if, if maybe the metaphor for us is we're people in the wilderness yeah. who hold God out in front of us, who gives us hope, who sustains us. Yes. Um, as we're looking for that promised land someday. And uh, I, I like that metaphor quite a bit. Yeah. Because uh, uh, in the wilderness, there isn't always progress. Like we want there to be progress. Mm. <laughs> and in the wilderness, we make mistakes and we don't always trust God. Like we should trust God, yes. but God is always faithful to us in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the, the globe, when it comes to global Christianity helps us rethink our allegiances, helps us rethink our identity as mm-hmm. maybe signposts and outposts of the kingdom of God in the wilderness. Um, and then I guess another insight from, from American Christian history in general is just the growth patterns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of the, of the church. So by and large throughout American history, we've sat at about 30 some odd percent of people who go to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. That number peaked at 65% in the 1950s and sixties. Oh, wow. wow. And now today we're, we're leveling back out at about 30%. So we tend to interpret American Christianity through that 1960, 65% lens Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that's what should be the norm. Yeah. Yeah. When it historically hasn't been the norm at all. And then the other anxiety we have is because even in our subconscious, we link 
Christianity with American exceptionalism. We panic when we say, well, Christianity in America, it's not going that well for us. Therefore, that's the end of all things. Christianity is done for. Well, no, (laughs) it's growing like crazy in Africa. It's going like crazy in Asia. Latin America is having these massive renewals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so without us or despite us, Christianity is fine. It was fine for the last 2000 years. It's going to be fine for the next. Yes. You know, we just have to be faithful where we are. And so I think we have to put that in perspective as well. Is it alarming that I go to a, I go to a church that used to have 500 people on a Sunday morning and now we have about 80? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of stuff to figure out. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the sky is falling and that the world is coming to an end? Probably not. <laughs> but I put it in that wider perspective. So those are some of the things that I thought about in response to that. That is so comforting. And I think these historical perspective, perspectives, it really explain a lot. Um, and what you're saying, I can just see just peace and, and hope emerge from the words that you're articulating that um, God is at work. God has always been at work. And um, the fact that we see just exponential growth in places like India and China and South America, it's a, uh, it really, it's a, re- it's a reminder that we don't need to fear. Uh, and uh, although the churches here in America are declining in number, mm-hmm. could, it could be setting us up for another, uh, another form, another version. And, uh, you know, I always love to talk to historians about the future as well. And you are an historian. I mean, do you have any suggestions for the churches of Christ about the future? Uh, is there anything that you've gleaned from your study of the past that could help us as we head into the future? I think that's always a hard question because we always hate making predictions. <laughs> uh, there's a few things that I think of. One, one of the perennial features of uh, American Christianity is revival. Mm. Uh, from the first great awakening to the second, to Civil War revivals, to early 20th century revivals, to the revivals of Billy Graham in the 1950s, to the revivals of the Jesus People Movement in the 1970s. Um, I think the question for us is not if we'll have another one, but just when and what will that look like? So I think that will happen again. Um, So there's that in terms of just keeping our eyes open for how is God moving in the world around us in that way too. Um, one of the things that we see throughout the history of American Christianity, but just history of Christianity in general is when the church and the state get too close together, mm-hmm. we begin having problems. And I think the church loses its witness mm-hmm. um, and loses its ability to be that alternative community that points to the kingdom yes. of God. And I think right now, this is, it's almost cliche to say this right now, but we're so divided politically, Mm, mm, incredibly divided. And I think we have to be the church where we are. And this is what I mean is on the left, you have folks who support government policies that, um, you know, people like to call socialism, things like that. Right. mm -hmm. We, we, we need a stronger safety net to help people in need and that kind of thing. And, uh, and please hear me. I'm not trying to be critical of that right now. I'm just, explain that but then on the right we have folks in the church who say hey 
abortion is an abomination in the eyes of God. Let's pass a series of laws mm-hmm. to make sure that that can't happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we, so I feel like in America right now, it, it seems like we are moving on both the left and the right to abdicating our responsibilities as a church and pushing them off onto the government. Man, so, so for example, in Lubbock right now mm-hmm. on May 1st, they're going to vote for a new city ordinance that's going to make Lubbock a sanctuary city for the unborn, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you drive around our city right now, you'll see these big banners on the sides of church buildings. You'll see mm-hmm. people on TV trying to drum people up to go vote for this thing. Yeah, yeah. But if we are really going to be the church, then maybe that means instead of spending all of our time, energy, and money on a political campaign, we, as the church find out how can we support single moms in Lubbock, Texas? Oh, wow. Who are those women who are pregnant and feel like they don't have those resources yes. that we can support as a congregation? Mm. What would it mean for us to take our time and energy and money out of these political things and turn it into being what the church should be? And so I'm not talking about a political movement like the social gospel movement was in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in the early 20th century. I'm saying if we're called to be an alternative community that points people back to the kingdom mm-hmm. and how do we treat each other? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our time? And what are the things that we're concerned about in this world? It feels like we get so caught up in these national conversations that we forget that right around us, there are people in need, you know, whether they are the poor or whether they are the rich isolated by their money and power. You know, what is good news around us? So I think um, we have a call, a real call today to be the church where we are. And I think that's something that folks right or left can get behind. You know? Give this man a microphone. Dr. <laughs> me, Hey, man, you're spouting truth right now. Uh, and one more question, too, about missions in particular, we, we mentioned it at the beginning of the call, and I'd be curious, someone who, like you, who is really interested in the global mission context, and you mentioned a shift in just how missions on a, an American perspective is done. You know, I think uh, when we were when we were in college, right, the, the idea was get a fa- group of people together, uh, find each one find support from a church, then go to a different city, plan a church, work with the church that's already existing there, uh, but even towards the end of my time, I noticed that funding was practically impossible, uh, mm-hmm. that there were less and less churches that were even interested mm-hmm. in funding a, an American to go abroad. So looking at where we are now in the future, I mean, what does mission work on a global context look like for, for us in America? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think uh, it's open-handed in that um, we, we do have a lot of resources here, mm-hmm. whether they're resources like theological education in our institutions or simply money that we need to, we need to be willing to, um, and of course, with money, we got to be really careful with that, mm-hmm. but we've got to be willing to be uh, resources for global Christianity, but in a way that we are friends and partners, right? Not gatekeepers. Right. Yeah. As well. And even I think about my students who are interested in the mission field today, I think um, there has to be a creativity. Mm-hmm. And like you're talking about the mango 
uh, stuff you're you're part of. You know, when we're in Thailand, uh, there's a guy doing uh, missions through tilapia farms. Oh man, crazy! I love it. Yeah, you know, and it's it's real creative. It's business is mission stuff, but how is he? It, it's not that he he is doing things like super creative things like using um, traditional Thai musical instruments and Thai songs and putting Christian words to them and mm-hmm. um, meeting people in a very contextual way. But then through this tilapia farm, also empowering farmers in the in the area, things like that. So just thinking holistically. Mm-hmm. about mission and then again with this global idea um of of the way things are shifting is is uh, what's already happening overseas and if i really do feel called to go overseas then how can i learn and partner with that yeah, you know good. instead of being the leader or the the american with all the resources again and the opposite might be true too maybe it's time for us to call our brothers and sisters in africa or india and say hey can you come here to the u.s and, and what are you doing what are you doing there that's uh that's customs revival yeah teach us exactly yeah exactly you know we've got something to learn from you <laughs> which you know would take a good dose of humility on our part but i think it's some humility that we need so a shift to holistic thinking, partnership, friendship, and taking advantage of this technology that we have. Where you know you're in Dallas, I'm in Lubbock. We're doing this, but you know I was doing this with a student that I had in Malawi oh. <laughs> when he was in his car on the phone, and we were we were doing this too. So maybe there there are some things that we can gain from this period of uh, COVID that we're hopefully emerging out of that we yes. can do as well. So. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Dr. Jeremy Hagee. Uh, he is a rising star. The conversation is so interesting with you and the insights that you've brought together. And so if I'm hoping that we can have you back for another episode. I know the listeners would appreciate that because uh, I am sure they are as blessed today as I was by this conversation. So, well, thank uh, you. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, let's do it again, Jeremy. Thank you so much for your time and God bless you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode with Dr. Jeremy Higgy. If you enjoyed this episode and you are craving more conversations just like this, click subscribe to this podcast. There are more interviews on the way. And feel free to share this podcast episode or any of the episodes on this podcast series with anyone who might find the information valuable. God bless. Looking forward to another episode next week.